As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. listening to the third episode of the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath. I'm Ruth Jackson and over this first series of the podcast, Alistair and I will be looking at some of Lewis's thoughts around significant topics such as the meaning of life, suffering and the hope of heaven. You can find out more about the C.S. Lewis podcast by heading to cslewispodcast.com. C.S. Lewis is one of the most influential voices in modern Christianity. The 20th century British writer and lay theologian has profoundly impacted Christians around the world and brought many atheists and agnostics to faith in Jesus. One person whose faith was greatly encouraged by the writings of C.S. Lewis is Professor Alistair McGrath. Both men were raised in Northern Ireland, studied at Oxford University and went on to become professors there. They also both came to faith from atheism slightly later in life. Alistair has written numerous books on C.S. Lewis, including a seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, which is published by Hodder. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of this book, then we would love you to post about the C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and include a link to our website, cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. And obviously, the more you share about the podcast, the more likely you are to win one of Professor Alistair McGrath's books. On today's episode, we will be talking about Narnia and the importance of stories to C.S. Lewis. Alistair, welcome back to the podcast. We're going to talk today a tiny, tiny topic of Narnia and the importance of stories to C.S. Lewis, which is obviously a huge topic. Um, But let's start with the fact that C.S. Lewis wanted to be remembered, ironically, as an atheist poet. And here he is as this incredible fiction writer. How did that come about? How did he get into fiction? Well, that's really interesting. And you're right, Lewis wanted to be remembered as a poet. In fact, as as a war poet. In other words, someone who wrote about the First World War and will be remembered almost like a prophetic voice Mm. in years to come, as an atheist, Mm. of course. And um, I've read his war poetry, and and, and every now and then you say, that bit's quite good, but it's not good overall. I think Lewis began to realize he really wasn't cut out to be a poet. But nevertheless, he wrote poetically. So the point you need to try and understand is that although Lewis could not sustain poetry, he was able to write in a style which was deeply attuned to the rhythms of languages, using rich imagery. In other words, it's clearly a poet 
writing prose. And so it gives that depth, that beauty, which is so rare, I think, in this sort of thing. And you're also right, because, I mean, he, he won't be an atheist poet. I mean, you remember him as a kind of Christian writer. And so obviously the transition from atheism to Christianity is enormously important to understanding who Lewis is. And we talked a bit more about his faith journey in the first podcast that we did. But that definitely, those themes come up in not only his apologetics writing, but also in his fiction. And I would say probably one of Lewis's most famous, the, the thing that he's most famous for is, is the Chronicles of Narnia. Where did some of those ideas come from? Well, that's a great question. And I, I'm not entirely sure Lewis <laughs> knew the answer, although he did, in effect, um, uh, make some suggestions, you know, about where he might have seen lions and things like that. I think we have to say that um, we're not entirely sure, but they are wonderful creations of the imagination. Maybe, you know, when he and his brother Warney were playing with the animals in, in Belfast when they were, you know, really young boys, some of these ideas began to emerge. But what we can say is basically that Aslan bounded into Lewis's imagination. And once he was firmly lodged in Lewis's imagination, the rest wrote itself. <laughs> and what are some of the theological ideas that Lewis unpacks in these stories? Because he tends to go into quite a lot of detail. He, there's lots of different things that he unpacks. I suppose in some senses, we're not, we don't even know that we're looking at those deep theological things because it's, because it's such a compelling story. But there's a lot that he packs in there, isn't there? Well, that's right. I, I think there are three volumes in the Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, the magician's nephew and of course the last battle which really explicitly address theological themes like the incarnation atonement creation and of course the whole idea of heaven judgment and things like that the other four basically touch on theological themes but they don't have quite the same prominence but lewis clearly felt that theological ideas were important but that standard didactic models you know were no good what you needed to do was to try and lodge these theological realities in people's imaginations and the best way of doing that was to tell stories and Lewis I think began to realize that you know one of the things that held him back from embracing Christianity as a child was that the Sunday school stories he heard were so dull and he began to wonder suppose I wrote children's books which conveyed Christian ideas as effectively as some of those books like Squirrel Nutkin, which I read and loved when I was a boy. Could I do that? And he began to realize, you know, I think I could. And that is where Narnia really begins. Because he had evacuees come and stay with him, didn't he, when he was living in Oxford? Do you think that was a factor in thinking about how to write children's stories? I'm sure that's part of the picture. I mean, Lewis... Uh, and Mrs. Moore took in several groups of evacuees, children, um, particularly in late 1939. And it may have been that they told them stories and, and Lewis began to say, ah, I can do something like this. Uh, that may have been part of it. I don't think it's a whole explanation, though. I think that Lewis was incubating some big project. And this may have helped stimulate the development. But I think there were other influences there as well. You've touched on this already, talking about the power of imagination for C.S. Lewis. But why was story as a medium so, so important for Lewis? 
I think Lewis, as a professional student of English li- language and literature, had read so many stories that it was very hard not to appreciate their deep appeal to the imagination. I think Lewis really felt that um, this was one way of beginning to, if I can put it like this, connect with people who were outside the church in a way that would simply not be possible through traditional Christian educational literature. So I think Lewis, in effect, borrowed from J.R.R. Tolkien the central idea that God made us to tell stories. And basically, uh, what uh, Lewis is saying is, if God made us to tell these stories, then maybe one of the best ways of communicating God is to tell stories in which God features, but not necessarily explicitly. And this will get beyond what he described as, you know, the the watchful dragons of, of some kind of rationalism. So I think Lewis is really trying to figure out ways of reaching beyond the Christian church to engage a wider culture by using a medium which was very, very effective in a form that wouldn't necessarily be recognized as Christian, but would be seen as interesting and engaging. In other words, children's stories about a lion. And they're not necessarily just for children, are they? I mean, that was clearly his intention, but they've got a much wider appeal than just children. Well, that's right. I mean, Lewis clearly wanted to write for children, but I first read the Chronicles of Narnia when I was about 22. <laughs> I have to say, I actually rather enjoyed them, um, maybe because I'm very childish, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, certainly, I mean, there's a, an imagined appeal, there's a literary coherence, there's a, a very deep resonance with uh, these books I found, and I, I just loved them. And of course, I could see what the theological message was, but it wasn't kind of way in your face, you know, imposed on you. It was something that emerged as you read and you felt this is, this is natural, this is, this is good. And I, I felt Lewis really had found his element in writing stories like this. And I think what we see, particularly in the Narnia stories, is, is conflicting stories, isn't it? We see the realm of the White Witch, or, or the Queen, as she calls herself, and then we see Aslan's reign, and, and the two conflicting stories in some senses. And the, the role of the children is to try and figure out which one is the true story. Uh, so how would Lewis say that we need to... How do we figure out what is the true story? What is the trustworthy story when we have all these conflicting narratives? Well, I think Lewis is saying that we've got to get used to the fact that in culture we do have these multiple stories being thrown at us. And we have to try and say, well, which of them do I trust? Because that is exactly what happens when the children go into Narnia. They hear different stories being told about what this place is and who it belongs to. And they've got to figure out who's right. And so basically they they begin to try and develop criteria by which you might judge stories. You know, how well do they correspond to facts? How well do they fit in what they've experienced? Things like that. And really the criterion they're looking for really is a story in which the story's imaginative framework makes most sense of the observations that they're able to bring together. And Lewis is saying that you have to make a choice here and that it's a rational choice in the sense that you're trying to say this is the one that actually works best. But he's also saying it really affects you quite deeply because once you've figured out what the right story is, the question you've then got to ask is, well, where does my personal story fit into this bigger story? And actually, one of the things that Lewis is doing, particularly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is helping you to grasp that Christian faith is your decision to allow your story 
to become part of this bigger story. And that bigger story then gives you a sense of identity and value and also a role you can play in moving that bigger story ahead. And I suppose as an apologist, uh, C.S. Lewis spent a lot of time talking about the rationality of Christianity, uh, just explaining how it's reasonable, how it works, how it is this bigger picture within which we can all sit. How would he then have talked about how we know that Christianity is the, is the correct story, is the right story compared to all the competing narratives? Well, Lewis took this question very seriously. And in uh, a lecture he gave with Oxford in 1944, he begins to say what I think is a very acceptable solution. He says, look, the issue here is how well does this story fit in what we see in our world, the way we behave, the way we think, the sciences, other faiths, literature. We need a story that's able to make sense of those being there and position them within a bigger picture. In other words, it's all about, in effect, casting this big net and be able to say, look, this one, the Christian one, is able to incorporate, position, and make sense of all of these things. Now, difficult, of course, you can't prove this is right. And in fact, in one sense, what Lewis is almost doing is saying, it feels right. It feels as if this really works. It's quite a subjective criterion, but he's saying it is an important criterion because it makes you say, this works for me. And that, for Lewis, is very important. Then you can use reason to try and give more objective reasons as well. But for Lewis, the whole issue of the Christian story as something that is trustworthy is very important because it then allows you to say, let me now figure out where I belong in this story and what difference I can make. And I suppose that was such a key thing for Lewis in his own journey, wasn't it? That he came to see that Christianity was a bigger picture within which he could fit. But there was also that sense in which it it just seemed to make sense. And as atheism was losing its appeal, Christianity was becoming more and more reasonable in in his perception. Well, that's right. And of course, it also feeds into another question, which is Lewis's Lewis's attempt to find his own vocation. What am I meant to be doing? And at points I see this kind of reasoning. I'm an atheist, or I used to be an atheist. I became a Christian. I know why I was an atheist. I know why I became a Christian. And I'm very good at literature and telling stories. So you can see him beginning to say, I think I could help atheists see what Christianity is all about by telling stories. That's my professional calling, if you like. I think he actually he did it rather well. Not many other people could do that. How do you think we learn to, as Lewis did, I suppose, learn to tell a better story in a culture that seems to have lots of these conflicting stories? Well, this this for Lewis is a really important question because Lewis, in effect, is saying that our culture is held captive by certain stories that we very often don't realize are there, but nevertheless, they shape the way we think. And in his 1941 sermon... Uh, the weight of glory. Lewis talks about this in some detail. He says, look, our culture has been taken captive by a story which says what you see is what you get. How do we break its spell? How do we liberate ourselves from this? And he says, in effect, that very often the the way of breaking a spell is to cast a better spell, i.e. 
tell a better story. And so for Lewis, what Christians must do is, in effect, immerse themselves in the Christian story, really become excited at its depth, its intellectual riches, its imaginative appeal, and tell that story so that people can realize there is an alternative to the dominant cultural narrative, which is quite simply naturalism and materialism. What you see is what you get. Lewis is saying, no, what you see is only the outward appearance. There's something deeper behind it. And once we discover and embrace that, everything looks different. We need to help our culture to make that discovery. I suppose when we think about telling stories, you might well think, oh gosh, I'm not a storyteller. I don't know how to do that. I'm not very good at speaking. Clearly, C.S. Lewis isn't just talking about physically telling stories is he he's talking about I guess living out of Esther's story what do you think that looks like for someone who isn't necessarily going to be a preacher but is just interested in living out their story in in the workplace in their school just in normal day-to-day life what would that have looked like for Lewis I think that's a really good question because many people say well look C.S. Lewis could tell stories very well and he wrote some wonderful books I couldn't do that so what use is it to me well actually Lewis helps you here because Lewis is saying look each of us has our own story we know it we can tell it and it might be a story of how I came to faith or it might be a story of how my faith became increasingly important to me and helped me cope with this and we can tell those stories and one of the points that Lewis is making I think very very well is that in telling these stories you're not just saying this happened to me you're saying this made sense of my life this was real not simply something I thought was right but actually it changed my life it made it richer and deeper and more satisfying and the implication is by telling the story it might also change your life so I need to say to anybody listening to this that you know you have a story you can tell you need to work out what is and how best to tell it but it's there and it's your story and you can say something that maybe nobody else can I think as well, I wonder if it's partly about inviting people into the experiential side of faith as well, because you've mentioned this in various books that you write about C.S. Lewis, where in mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis is telling people something, whereas in the Narnia Chronicles or in other fiction that he's writing, he's asking them to experience it. And it's a much deeper uh, level in some senses, isn't it? It's very interesting because at several points, as you rightly say, Lewis is saying, let me help you to understand what Christianity is all about. And that's important. Mm. But he's also saying, let me try and describe to you what it's like to enter this world and experience it and be part of it. And that's part of that as well. And again, I think that is so important because ordinary Christians can talk about, for example, how they um, experience Christianity and say, this is part of the understanding of this. It appeals to the reason, the imagination, and the emotions, and all those come together in these worlds. I mean, Lewis is not a kind of academic rationalist. He's somebody who lives out his faith and is able to describe how it feels and the difference it makes. C.S. Lewis obviously comes up with some great ideas himself, but he's also borrowed uh, from other people, from ideas before him. Will you tell us some of those things that he's weaved into his fiction? Well, Lewis is wonderful at borrowing ideas and, uh, and using them in highly effective ways. He borrows from Milton, he borrows from Dante, he borrows from Shakespeare. But for me, one of the most interesting images that he borrows is from 
Plato's Dialogue, The Republic. This is a work of classical Greek philosophy. And in it, Plato asks us to imagine a group of people who are living in an underground cave. And they've been there all their lives. And so it's the only world they know. And there's a fire there. It's burning and it lights up the walls and there are shadows on the walls. And the point that Plato is making is the people inside the cave think this is all there is. This is what you get. There's nothing more to it than that. This world of smoke and shadows is reality. Of course, the point Plato is making is we know it's not. We know that they think this is all there is to reality. We know there's a bigger world outside the cave. Now, Lewis knew that analogy and used it on many occasions. For example, think of the silver chair. The, uh, the underworld is basically Plato's cave. But one of the points that Lewis is trying to make is this, that we think this world is the end of everything, that there's nothing beyond it. But Lewis is saying we are like people in a dark underground cave. There's a world beyond the cave. And maybe there are things inside the cave that point to that greater world. Or maybe somebody might come into the cave from this bigger world and say, hey, there's a bigger world out there. I can take you there. And Lewis is really using this uh, image in a very imaginative way, basically taking something from Plato and putting it to Christian use. I think it's really interesting. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast series. We're going to talk about Lewis's sense of hope and heaven and the idea that we see glimpses of some of that on Earth. But but obviously it's pointing towards a future, a future place. Um, but what were some of the conflicting stories that C.S. Lewis saw in his time? What were some of those stories that he was almost trying to speak into and to, I suppose, rebuke and to tell a better story in that? In his, in his culture, in his context? I think I see three major stories that Lewis is challenging. One of them is what I would loosely call materialism. In other words, there's this material reality, there's nothing beyond that. Forget about anything else. Then there is a more advanced approach, which is Marxism, which was quite big in Lewis's day. And Lewis clearly is aware of this, but he doesn't engage with any great detail. And he's also aware of Darwinism, um, both as a scientific theory, but also as a sort of metaphysical system based loosely on the science, which in effect says evolution explains everything. And Lewis basically is saying, look, I'm going to challenge each of those First of all, on their empirical grounding, how, what's the evidence for them? But also, if they are right, where do they take us and can we live with that? So Lewis is actually challenging the uh, myths of our day. But the main one, I think, that really excites him and which he talks about mostly in um, uh, the we call the Ransom Trilogy, uh, particularly um, the hideous, that hideous strength, is scientism. The idea that science on its own is able to answer all of life's questions. He sees that in H.G. Wells. He doesn't like it. And in the um, Space Trilogy and in also the Abolition of Man, he's saying science is not able to answer all our questions. We need a better and bigger narrative than this. Christianity is able to in effect, position science, helping us to understand why it is so successful, but also 
why it has its limits. And that's a really important point in today's very scientific culture. I was going to say a lot of those themes still feel incredibly relevant over 50 years later. But do you think there's anything that we now have in our culture, another story that Lewis maybe wouldn't have encountered back in his day? I think Lewis would have been surprised by some of the trends he would see in our culture. One of them is to, in effect, choose to make our up our own worlds, you know, in other words, to self-define in whatever way we like, in effect, almost to, to take offense if the world does not conform to what we think it ought to be. Because one of Lewis's arguments is that in an act of intellectual humility, we need to try and figure out the way the world is, not the way we personally would like it to be, and kind of we reorientate ourselves as a result. And so I think Lewis would be anxious that we are fabricating social realities simply to give ourselves a spurious consolation. He's saying we've got to face up to the way things really are instead of indulging in escapism. So that would be an uncomfortable thing, I think, that Lewis might say. But I think it's quite an important point to kind of feed into contemporary conversations. It feels like we've touched, just scratched the surface of a huge, huge topic there. We're going to talk a little bit more about Aslan and stories in the next episode. But if we want to know more about Narnia, other than reading the stories themselves, and and what Lewis thought about story, is there somewhere that we can go to read a bit more about this, read Lewis on the subject? We can read some of his essays, which are in all the standard collection of Lewis's essays on uh, fairy stories, on writing children's stories, on the appeal to the imagination. And I think really there's so much there to read about in Lewis. Or you can read um, accounts of how Lewis wrote Narnia and just begin to get a sense of how this wonderful vision began to take place in his mind and then in reality. It's a great way of getting more of reading Narnia. Just as we finish, Alistair, have you got a favourite story from the Narnia Chronicles? Um, I prefer The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which I think is the first in the series and the best. It's self-contained. You almost have the impression Lewis was telling a self-contained story and left himself the option of stopping there or keeping going. But it's perfectly crafted. I, I think it's one of the best stories I've ever read. So that's my favorite. But I'm sure there are many listening to this podcast who will say, aha, we <laughs> prefer. And I'm sure there'll be many other rivals. I mean, the magician's nephew is very special, I think. So's the last battle. <laughs> be great to know what you think. Which one is your favorite? Alistair, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the third ever episode of the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of one of Alistair's books about C.S. Lewis, then we would love you to post about this new C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and include a link to our website, cslewispodcast.com. Over this first series of the C.S. Lewis podcast, Alistair and I will be looking at some of Lewis's thoughts around significant topics, such as education, suffering, and the hope of heaven. Next week, we will be building on today's podcast around Narnia and stories, and focusing particularly on the character of Aslan. 